All right, so I invite you to open up to that passage in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 15. I thought we would take a break from the book of Acts for a while, and uh, over the next several weeks, look at some passages of Scripture which remind us how we're to live as God's people in a time like 2020. With all that's going on, with the stress and the anxiety that many of us have been feeling in, in recent months, and Many of us have probably seen one of those movies where sci-fi meets dystopia and humans have ruined the earth and we can no longer live here. And so we strike out into space looking for a new home, right? Movies like Interstellar and WALL-E and uh, several different episodes of Doctor Who. And these storylines tap into uh, a very real fear that we have as humans these days that if we keep on the course that we're on, that we might ruin this earth, we might use up its resources, we might find ourselves homeless. Well, if you read the Bible, you find that to some extent, God agrees. That God agrees that we're in the process of ruining this world beyond our own ability to repair it. Not that it's not repairable, it's that we as humans lack the wisdom and that we lack more importantly, the moral will to repair it. And I'm not just talking about the environment here. I'm talking about that, yes, but I'm also talking about our cultures and our societies and our politics and our governments and our relationships and our communities. We've warped them. We have ruined them beyond our own ability to figure out how to restore them. But God's assessment of the situation is different from that of the movies. God's answer isn't to believe in us, in our basic goodness, in our technological ingenuity, so that we'll one day develop the technology necessary to travel space looking for a new home. And God is certainly not going to help us to that end. Not going to help us leave earth behind and start over on a new home. You see, God is not like one of those rich, indulgent parents who set their young children up in their own luxury house which they and their playboy friends then trash and destroy. And so what do those parents do? They simply buy them another one. After all, kids will be kids and money is no object. That's not God's approach. God isn't going to just say, oh, well, you trashed your home. Don't worry, I'll give you a new one. No, God is responsible. And God expects humans who God has created in his own image to be responsible too. And so in the Bible, God digs into the reasons that we've been irresponsible, the reasons that we're, we're wrecking this world, and what we need to do differently, what we need to learn from our mistakes and from our misdeeds. And we see some of these reasons that we've wrecked the world, uh, some of the ways that we've been irresponsible, right in Colossians 3, in the verses right before the ones that um, Janet just read for us. So up in verse 5 of Galatians, Colossians 3, we read about sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed. And then in verse 8, we read about anger and rage and malice and slander, filthy language and lying. That sounds like how this world has acted, right? Further, God says, I'm not giving you a brand new world somewhere else. No, you're going to keep living in the home that you've made a mess of. You made the mess, you live in it, and you fix it. You sort it out. Learn to be responsible. 
But God is a loving parent too. And so God says, tell you what, I, I know you can't fix it on your own. I'm here for you. I'll work with you. I'll teach you how to live differently, how to fix your home. I'll teach you how to care for it so this never happens again. And so when we step back, there are really two kinds of people in this world. There, um, the, the difference between these two types has to do with how they respond to this invitation from God. Actually, as we've seen in the book of Acts, it has to do with how they respond to Christ, who is that invitation, who is God's representative to earth, who is God's foreman, you could say, on the world renovation job, the world salvation job that God has set out to accomplish. So first, there are those people who decline God's invitation and who are just going to go it on their own, try to manage life in this world on their own without Christ the best that they can. And then second, there are another set of people who are those who say, you know what, we can't do it on our own. We have tried that. It doesn't work. We've failed. We need Christ to step in. We need God's representative to teach us how to live in this world. We need to be taught how to take care of the world, how to take care of each other, how to take care of culture and the environment and other people and ourselves. And Christ says to the second group of people who recognize their need for him, one day I will come back for you and I'll finish the job of transformation that you're committed to now for this world. I'll finish cleaning up the mess and remaking this world to be a much better home and I'll stay with you and I'll live with you in it forever. Well, all of that is background to today's passage. That scenario, that story, that backdrop is what's in Paul's mind as he's writing this letter. We live in, in what he calls the old world, which is ruined because of humanity's reckless ways of living. But God has sent Jesus Christ to open up the way to the renewal of our world and to a new way of living. And those who follow Christ have started living the life of that renewed world now even though the renewed world hasn't fully gotten here yet. This is this way of life and this renewal of the world. It's called by various names in the Bible. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called the new creation. It's called the newness of life. It's called eternal life. It's about partnering with God, seeking to repair and to restore this world, and also practicing a better way of living now, the way that we're going to live in the renewed world to come all as we await Christ's return to fully renovate, to restore, to transform this world for us to live in it with him forever. And all of this is very appropriate to 2020. Because more than any other year in the 21st century, this year, it feels like the world is broken, right? This year, we're navigating through times that are not easy. They're not smooth sailing. Life is constantly choppy, chaotic, and stormy. And, and so we're continually on edge. We're on guard for what's going to hit us next. And, and it's exhausting, and it's stressful, and it's making us feel very anxious. Remember 2019? Life wasn't perfect, but in comparison, 
It's like we, at least many of us, were living in a fairly nice, comfortable home. And then suddenly in 2020, the, the home, it started falling apart. The roof started leaking. The, the electricity went out. The furnace broke. It's been a rough year. And it's not over yet. <laughs> well, the Bible is no stranger to such times. Many of us, though, who, especially those of us who are younger than maybe 60, who've grown up in America, we've lived in a window of time in history when it's been pretty comfortable and pretty smooth sailing for a lot of us. We've been fairly insulated from what's broken in the world. There's been no major world wars, no major depressions, no major pandemics or plagues until 2020. Others of you who are a bit older or who have grew up in other countries or in challenging neighborhoods, you already know well how challenging life can be. And you've had to learn to be strong and to be resilient and to have lots of faith. Well, 2020 has woken the rest of us up to that fact. It's woken us up to the reality of, of things like racism and injustice, plagues, natural disasters, civil unrest. It's woken us up to the fact that the home we're living in has been trashed by us and that it's badly in need of major renovations. Again, I'm not just talking about the environment, although that's part of it. I'm talking about culture and relationships and government and society and so many other things as well. Well, that, this is what Paul is speaking to in today's passage. This is the backdrop. He's telling us how to live through a time like 2020, which were the kind of times that the people who lived in New Testament times were living through. It's, he's telling us how to live in a messed up world in a way so that we don't mess it up worse, but rather how to live in such a way as to make it better, to repair it, and to practice living the way that we'll need to live in the better world that Christ will one day restore and remake for us. So let's look at our passage. And in it, Paul basically says two things to us to those of us who are committed to following Jesus Christ. First, he reminds us of our identity. He reminds us of who we are. And then second, he tells us how we're supposed to dress, what sort of character and lifestyle and behavior we're supposed to put on in light of who we are. Because think about this, who we are, how we see ourselves often affects and influences how we dress. Do we consider ourselves to be a hippie? Then we'll probably dress in a certain way. If we consider ourselves to be a hipster, we'll probably dress in a different way. If, if you are or you were a parent, you may have had this discussion or this argument with your kids about what they were gonna wear to school or to church. And in the back of your minds as a parent was likely the fact that what your child wears reflects on you and your family. How they dress says something about your family identity, and you want to have some say over that. I can remember a few times when Anne was away, and I was in charge of the kids, and they were young, and, and she'd say, don't let the girls go out of the house without brushing their hair, right? Because if they go into public with their hair looking like it's a rat's nest, it's going to affect on how people view our family, and so Paul says, I'm going to remind you of who you are, your identity. And then I'm going to tell you in light of that, how to dress. So let's start with identity. Verse 12, 
You are God's holy people, or sorry, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. If you follow Jesus, that's who you are. You are chosen. God has chosen you. Before you ever chose Jesus or made a decision to follow Jesus, God chose you to be his own. Now here we quickly get into the mysteries and the controversies of predestination, and we don't have time today to plumb those depths. But this very quickly is what we need to know about being chosen. It's about love. It's about God's love. It's about being special in God's eyes. God saw you and knew you and loved you. And so he chose you. He chose you to be in his family, to be among those who will inherit the home after he finishes renovating it. And in the meantime, God's chosen you to start learning how to take care of the home, how to live in such a way that will treat our home, our future restored home, better than in the past we've treated this present world. We are chosen for those things. We're chosen because we're loved. We're also holy. Holy doesn't mean perfect. There's a lot of misconceptions about this word. It doesn't mean pious. It doesn't mean religious per se. In fact, holy is not about our behavior, behavior first and foremost. Holy is about our status. Eugene Peterson in his book, Run with the Horses, explains, he talks about the word saint, which in the original Greek of the New Testament is literally a holy one, one who is holy. And Peterson writes, for a long time, all Christians were called saints, holy ones. They were all called saints, regardless of how well or badly they behaved, or how experienced or inexperienced they were. The word saint did not refer to the quality or virtue of their acts, but to the kind of life to which they'd been chosen. It was not a title given for after, sorry, it was not a title given after a spectacular performance, but rather a mark of whose side you were on. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be a saint. So here's what it means to be holy. It means to be on God's side. It means to belong to God. Chosen. Holy. Chosen to be holy. Chosen to belong to God. And then third word, dearly loved. Chosen, why? Because God saw us and loved us. God saw us and wanted to express love to us. God saw us and said, I want to forgive all of your wrongdoings. I want to wipe them away and give you a new beginning. I want you not to perish in this house that's falling apart. No, I want you to learn to live with me in the house that will one day restore and I will restore for you, with you and for you. I want you to be mine, to be part of my family forever. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. That's who we are. And so that affects how we dress. Our identity affects what we put on, which is what Paul moves on to next. He's already told us how not to dress. We saw that earlier up in verses five and verse eight. All those ways which have contributed 
to the world being messed up. We're not going to dress ourselves up in those ways of living anymore, Paul says. That's how the world got wrecked. That's how it's still getting wrecked. No, we're going to have to live differently. We're going to have to learn to live in the ways that will lead to the renovation of the world and be conducive to living in the new world once it's been completely remade. Do you want to learn how to live in that new world? That's what Paul tells us here. And I thought it would be a great reminder for us during 2020 when we're tempted to be cranky and to feel sorry for ourselves and to selfishly look out for ourselves, even at the expense of others. So now that we've been reminded who we are, let's remember how we're to dress. Paul says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And over all these virtues, put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. What a picture. That's how chosen, holy, dearly loved children of God dress. Let's go through this. Let's start with compassion. Literally in the, in the Greek text, it's, it's heartfelt compassion. It's compassion from the gut. It's feeling mercy and compassion for someone in your stomach. That's how chosen, holy, dearly loved ones are to treat one another. It means we notice when others are struggling. And we don't harden our hearts to their trouble. We respond to them with compassion. We offer them comfort. We offer them help and assistance. We treat them soft-heartedly. For some of us, this comes very naturally. Others are more pragmatic and and no nonsense. And, And maybe we say, I don't have the gift of mercy. Well, guess what? Gift or no gift, nobody gets off the hook on this one. If you don't by nature have a merciful heart, then you better work extra hard at being compassionate and extending compassion because it's not an optional part of the dress code for God's people. Next item of clothing is kindness. This Greek word could also be translated goodness or generosity. It means treating others the way that we would want to be treated. With civility and with politeness, of course, but more than that, with thoughtfulness, with consideration, with generosity. Boy, right out of the gate, think 2020. Heartfelt compassion and kindness. I mean, have you always felt that way toward others this past year? (laughs) Have you you felt that way toward those you live with, toward your spouse who's working from home, toward your children who you've been cooped up with all summer? How about those who have not been handling this pandemic well, who've been getting a bit whiny, who've been complaining? Or how about those who don't have the same idea as you do of how important it is to actually wear a mask or how far away six feet actually is? Have you felt compassion and kindness for these people? All right, let's keep moving. The next two words are closely related, humility and gentleness. These words have to do with being content to be in a low place, in a low status rather than a high place. They mean that if we find ourselves in a low place without a lot of influence, without having things our way, without being respected or noticed, that we don't need to complain or fight 
for a higher place. And if we're in a higher place, if we have power or money or honor or notoriety, we don't have to hold on to it or, or point it out to anyone or use it for our own advantage. We can act as if we're low. We can feel solidarity with those who are low and come alongside them. Humility means we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to point out our successes or other people's failures. We don't have to compare them, them to us. We can just be gentle and unassuming and genuinely interested in the good of others. We can be happy if others rise higher than us, and we can be content whether we're high or low. Wow, easier said than done, right? <laughs> Next is patience. And this Greek word means patience with people, not patience in the, the uh, drive through at McDonald's. Patience with people. It's often translated long-suffering. And it's clarified by the next phrase in verse 13, which isn't a new sentence in the Greek. Uh, in English, we chop things up into shorter sentences. But this is, all, this is all the continuation of verse 12 in Greek. As in, be patient, bearing with one another. Be patient here means that we keep putting up with people. <laughs> You know, back in March, when this pandemic was just beginning, I saw the opinions beginning to emerge about how cautious we should be. You know, there was, you saw it in the news, you saw it around you. Um, should we cancel things? Should we hold them? Um, can we get together? How important is social distancing? Everyone sees it differently, right? We all have our personalities, our level of, of cautiousness. Um, and I thought, boy, we are going to have to extend extra love and extra patience and extra grace to one another to get through this well. And so that's what I've been trying to do. When, when people annoy me, when I disagree with them, when they get cranky or I get cranky, I'm still trying to remind myself, extra grace, extra patience, bear with one another. This is the grease that keeps the gears from grinding and overheating, the gears of personalities and relationships, and it keeps us all functioning without too much friction. We've got to be extra patient, long-suffering, bearing with one another. And so then verse 13 related to this, forgive one another any grievance you might have. Literally, the Greek is give grace to one another if you have any grievance. Give grace. You've received grace. Pay it forward. Be willing to forgive. Be willing to let it go. Not because the other person deserves it. Grace doesn't have to be deserved. That's the point of grace. Just do it because you're willing to let it go. To release them from your grievance. Forgive one another. Well, then Paul sums it all up in a word. Love. Over all these virtues, verse 14, put on love. We're getting dressed, right? We're learning how chosen, holy, dearly loved people dress, what qualities they put on. And Paul says on top of everything else, they put on love. And really everything else Paul's been describing is, is a facet of love. It's just love is too big of a concept to summarize with just one word. 
And so Paul gave us all these others too, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiveness, giving extra grace. All of that and more is love. And that's what it takes, all of that, to begin to fix this world, our home, which is so badly broken. Imagine if everyone lived this way, how culture would begin to heal, how social media would be transformed, how our world would begin to mend. Well, we can't control whether everyone else lives this way, but as holy, chosen, dearly loved ones, those who are tasked with learning to live out the way of a better world now, and of mending and restoring our world, this is how we dress. It's what we put on. It's how we're learning to live. Back in 2005 or so, uh, the band U2 put out an album called How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And Bono, U2's singer, who's, who's a Christian, was talking about this album title with another Christian singer you may have heard of, Michael W. Smith. And, and Bono asked him, how do you dismantle an atomic bomb? And Michael W. Smith said, I have no idea. And Bono said, it's simple. Love. Love is how you dismantle an atomic bomb. If we want to dismantle this world that we've made, this mess that we've made in this, in, this atomic world, it will take love. It will take compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, giving them extra grace, forgiving them. And boy, how much more we who have been chosen in love to be saints and to work for the world to come and then to live in the world to come, how much more we need to learn to live this way now in 2020. Well, Paul's not quite done with us yet. I hope you're realizing as, as Paul unpacks this picture that we can't do this on our own, <laughs> that we need the Holy Spirit. We need to get on our knees and say, God, I need you to give me a new heart. <laughs> At least that's true for me. Well, Paul's got two more things to say, though. First, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace. We've, we've talked about before um, in Hebrew how this is the word shalom, right? And for a Jew like Paul, raised in the Hebrew scriptures, when he uses the Greek word for peace, shalom is what he has in mind. Shalom is bigger than just peace. Shalom is a huge, all-encompassing word that describes what this renewed world that God will remake will be like. The kind of home that we all long to live in. Where there's peace. Where we feel peaceful instead of anxious. We feel calm and we feel at peace. Where we get along peacefully with others, where there isn't strife. And where we enjoy peace and safety and security. No one's going to break in to steal or to destroy or to oppress us. All of that is wrapped up in shalom. Paul says, let the, that peace rule in your hearts. Live at peace. Seek peace. Don't let anxiety gain the upper hand. Don't let strife win out. Don't allow chaos and disorder and oppression to prevail. Your goal is peace. Pursue it. 
Seek it. And then finally, be thankful. Be grateful. Gratitude is so important to Paul. If, if we had time to keep reading, we'd see thankfulness come up just to, uh, in the next couple verses several more times. This gets back to the question, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? It's a matter of perspective, whether we choose to complain or whether we choose to be grateful. There's plenty to complain about. There's also plenty to be thankful for. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. And the choice we make will affect our own peace, our own shalom, our own attitude. And then through us, it will affect that of others as well. I can tell you as one of CBC's elders, I've had the privilege um, in the past months of calling a handful of you periodically just to check in. Uh, We as elders, along with the MST, we divided up the whole church and we said during this pandemic, let's make an extra effort to be in touch, to stay connected, to check in with, with everyone. And for the people that I've called, I've been so encouraged by how thankful you've been. Not so much that I called, but just with life. Sure, you have had struggles, but again and again, you've told me what you're grateful for. You you pointed out the good things. You've chosen to dwell on them. And that's encouraged me, and I know it's encouraged you, too, as you've chosen to view life that way. Because gratitude, thankfulness, is one of the secrets to being happy. It's choosing to focus on, to dwell on the good, the beautiful, the true, rather than the bad and the ugly and the problematic. Sure, the bad is there. I mean, just read the news any day. But we give the bad more power when we dwell on it, when we fixate on it, when we fill our minds with it. And that's not to be our focus. Because we're chosen, we're holy, we're dearly loved. And so we have much to be grateful for as we work for and as we wait for a better home, a renewed home, which is still to come. So in conclusion, if we're going to live well in the rest of 2020, we've got to take this passage to heart. We've got to remember who we are and we've got to live that way, to dress that way. So let me just read it to us one more time. And and as I read it in closing, listen for the part of this passage that sticks out to you, that especially grabs your attention. This may be the part that you need to focus on this week. And so that's my challenge to you this week to let whatever sticks out to you as I read it again, let that be God's word to you this morning and through this week. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Amen. Let's respond in worship as we sing this closing song.